0: So, one of our favorite footwear brands, Olakai, just got into the golf market. And this is very, very good news. We already knew and loved Olakai from their sandals, which are almost ridiculously comfortable. They're a Hawaiian-inspired brand. Olakai is actually two Hawaiian words. Olu meaning comfort and Kai meaning ocean. And they recently launched golf shoes. Like I said, we are over the moon about this. Because for golfers, they're bringing the same quality and comfort that we know from their sandals to the course in the form of spikeless golf shoes. They sent two of the models our way. I got the classic leather shoe, the YLI, and the more lightweight Kapalua. First thing I noticed, I love how you can collapse the heel to make any shoe a slip-on. That's their signature drop-in technology. In fact, the first few times I wore these, it wasn't to the golf course. It was just out in social settings and got a number of compliments on how they looked. I personally leaned toward the Kapalua because I like the lightweight nature of it. I like the trench blue color. I thought it looked really nice. And when I took it out in the golf course, not only was it light, not only was it comfortable, not only did it look good, but for a spikeless golf shoe, the traction was unbelievable. I didn't notice any difference. In fact, I went out one of the first few times with this shoe, shot an 83, my personal best score ever. I'm not saying it was entirely the shoe, but I don't think it hurt. So these guys are great. They also make women's shoes. And the bottom line is that Olakai designed these shoes to be comfortable right out of the box and to wear long after 18 holes. So... Next time you tee it up, bring a little Aloha along with Olukai Golf. You can find them at O-L-U-K-A-I dot The podcast you're about to hear was originally recorded in the summer of 2021 under the title, The Ryder Cup Run. That was sort of a limited series. This was the first episode, and because we're in Ryder Cup season, we thought now might be a good time to run it here on digest i've re-recorded it there are a couple things i wanted to add and change but overall it's pretty faithful to the original i would say and we might be running a couple of these here over the next couple of months so enjoy the show i'm gonna leave y'all on one thought and i'm gonna leave i'm a big believer in fate I have a good feeling about this. That's all I'm going to tell you. We all swore that Sunday night. We will be coming back. We will come back. We will beat them in 85. We will beat them in 85. And you wouldn't bet against Patrick Reed following him in. I started to think about uh, maybe the possibility of winning here uh, today Uh, A few thoughts uh, for my friend Sevi. This one is for for him Five of you have already asked me tonight, you know, what's the winning formula? What's the difference year in and year out? And You know if I could put my finger on it would have changed this shit a long time ago This is for the Ryder Cup And it slipped by the edge It slipped by the edge, and now things change. Now things change. I live for the Ryder Cup. That's why I'm here. I will deliver a point. What is it about the 2014 Ryder Cup at Glen Eagles in Scotland that still captures my imagination, and I think the imagination of many people who love this event? Certainly not because of what happened on the course. Look, if you went in August of 2014, a month before this thing started, you fed the results of the last 40 years of Ryder Cups into a supercomputer and said, supercomputer, tell me who's going to win the 2014 Ryder Cup. That computer would take two seconds to say, well, this is a Ryder Cup on European soil. Europe's going to win, and it's probably going to be a blowout. And that's exactly what happened. Of course it did. Be that as it may, if you enjoy... Not just the results of the Ryder Cup, but the history of those results, of why they happen, the forces behind them. Forces that go beyond the mere playing of golf. If you're looking for the fulcrum where things change, this one was decisive, in my opinion. And I want to emphasize that, my opinion. You're going to have a lot of people, most of them American, who say and who I think believe that anything that happens in the Ryder Cup is purely down to the luck Which team happened to play well on a given weekend? And I actually respect that opinion to a degree. This is a golf exhibition that lasts for three days every two years. It is a very small sample size. And one easy way to explain the winners and losers is to shrug your shoulders and say, well, hey, Europe made the putts, America didn't, or vice versa. If you flip a coin 40 times, there's a chance that you could get heads 30 times. Not a good chance but sometimes it's going to happen. But, respect for that opinion aside, I do fundamentally disagree, because I am one of those people who thinks this stuff goes deep. I believe in root causes, I believe in trajectories, and I believe in a significant strategic imbalance that has, for the last almost 40 years now, favored the Europeans. I also happen to believe that failing to understand this stuff, that chalking it up to the luck of the draw has done America no favors and, in fact, is a very good way to keep losing. And we've seen America shift that recently. And it's been a very recent shift, but I think a good one. But in 2014, the Glen Eagles Ryder Cup, there was nothing new in that regard. There was no massive shift yet. That shift happened afterward. And on paper, again, what we saw was actually very typical. It's Ryder Cup in Europe. The Europeans haven't lost at home and well, now it's almost 30 years by the time we get to Italy. And most of the time, they win pretty convincingly. There wasn't much on-course drama. You look at the matches on paper, and guess what? This is a dull Ryder Cup. You can't even point to any one player in this Ryder Cup and say, okay, this guy was the hero, like Ian Poulter or Justin Rose were in Medina. I personally think you say that about Paul McGinley, the European captain, who I happen to believe is one of, if not the greatest captain ever to do this thing, but you wouldn't say it about any player. It doesn't come down to heroics. It obeys the logic of everything that came before. But what's so interesting about 2014, I think, is that it represented the epitome of all these forces that had been gathering for decades to the point that when the whole thing is done, even the most stubborn American, the guys who would say, well, it just didn't go our way out there, even they can't tell you that everything's okay. And I think in a nutshell, that's what 2014 is for me. This is the Ryder Cup that broke the Americans. This is Local Knowledge. My name is Shane. And before we get into the gory details of 2014, I think it's worth taking a detour into the history of the Ryder Cup, particularly the modern history, because it's very interesting. And... What we have to understand is that when it got interesting, when it really, really began to be the spectacle that drew in fans and became very competitive, that wasn't until the whole continent of Europe got involved. And that started in 1979. We're going to call that the European era. And before the European era, the entire Ryder Cup was a bludgeoning. There's really no other way to put it. Really one of the most lopsided sporting events ever. We're talking like Harlem Globetrotters versus Washington Generals here. But things changed quickly after that, and I think we need a little bit of that context to see exactly what the Americans were facing coming into Glen Eagles. Now, the numbers from the pre-European era, when you read them aloud, almost sound made up. In the first 50 years of Ryder Cup, starting in 1927 and ending in 1977, the Americans were 19-3. and 3, Essentially, there was one draw in there where they retained the cup, which everyone still considers a win, so we'll say 19-3 and is the record, and rarely, rarely was it close. You know, truly the most remarkable thing about the Ryder Cup and what I'll loosely call the Great Britain era, you know, there were two transition years in there where the opponent was Great Britain and Ireland, adding the Irish made absolutely no difference, but the most remarkable thing is that this event kept going. I mean, here you had the American juggernaut, a country today that has more than 300 million people against a country that has always been about one-fifth of our size. And yes, golf was native to them. Yes, they have more tradition. Didn't matter. Did not matter. It wasn't a fair fight. And in fact, even when they brought in Europe for the first two years of that era, 1979, 1981, it was still an American drubbing. They killed him. John Jacobs was the captain of those first European teams. He didn't really have a solid idea of what he was doing. Tony Jacklin, the Englishman who eventually changed it all and really the original hero of the European story, there George Washington, if you will, told me that Jacobs was the worst captain he'd ever had. In those first European years, they were completely outmatched. Looking back, we say this a lot. It is a miracle they didn't cancel this thing. The Ryder Cup gets much more interesting and really starts to justify its existence in 1983. That's when they bring Seve on board, Seve Ballesteros. That's when some of these Europeans start to win a lot in America. A whole new generation of talent emerges. Along with Seve, you've got Bernard Langer, Nick Faldo, a couple of other guys, and suddenly the Ryder Cup is a dogfight. Once Jacqueline comes on as captain, it changes completely, and it changes fast. And on paper, the U.S. should still be better. Yes, Europe is joined now. That's a big deal. But these European nations don't have a huge golf-playing population. The U.S. does. The U.S. is still the juggernaut, still has the overwhelming infrastructure and numerical advantage on its side. And again, on paper, they still have the better teams, usually. There have been exceptions. In fact, 2014 is going to be one of them. But when you look at world rankings, majors won, tournaments won, anything you want, pick a metric. Europe is almost always the underdog. That continues to this day, probably not going to change anytime soon. And yet, despite that, Europe starts to shift the momentum. In 1983, Jacqueline's first year, they go to the U.S. to PGA National in Palm Beach Gardens, and they almost win. They come up agonizingly short, one point short on the last day. They're completely devastated, but they almost win. Two years later at the Belfry in England, they win by five points, a blowout. Now, now, you've got America's attention. Two years later, 1987, Jacqueline, back again, takes him to Ohio to Mirafield Village, Jack Nicholas's home course. Nicholas is the American captain, and Europe does the unthinkable. They beat America in America. Now, at this point, the Ryder Cup has been happening for 60 years on the dot, and that has never happened before. They retain at the Belfry with a tie in 1989. Jacqueline steps down. America wins the next two. Very controversial at Kiowa and then at the Belfry. And that second one, the Belfry in 93, is important because it's the absolute last time the Americans will win on European soil to this day. They're going to get another bite at the apple in Italy in a month and a half. By that point, that span will be 30 years since they've won over there. Talk about a reversal. And meanwhile, Europe is winning half the time in America, like clockwork. So by 2014, if you're the U.S., you've got a budding disaster on your hands. You're mired in three decades of losing to these guys who you should beat. Nobody has any answers. And in fact, it keeps getting worse. Two years earlier at Medina outside Chicago, they suffered what has to be the most devastating Ryder Cup loss ever. No hyperbole. We're talking both teams there. Davis Love III was the American captain. By all accounts, he did a very good job, maybe even a great job. Uh, You could quibble with a roster decision here and there, maybe, particularly in Sunday singles, but it would be a quibble. America takes a 10-6 lead into Sunday, and everything is positive. I was there. That was the first Ryder Cup I covered, and the energy was incredible on Friday and Saturday. Looking back at those days, you're always going to remember Keegan Bradley and Phil Mickelson earning three points, their great energy, and the feeling that this had to go America's way. And then Sunday comes, and it's a collapse. Somehow the Europeans staged this incredible comeback. The course is like a funeral outside of a few pockets of, you know, drunk English and Scottish fans waving flags and singing. And for the Americans, it's a nightmare. Now, there had been a 10 6 comeback before. And in fact, it happened rather recently in 99 at Brookline when it was the Americans coming back from that same deficit on Sunday. But this one at Medina happened on enemy soil. So it's really. A whole new level. So now here we are two years later, 2014. The Americans have got to go to Scotland against a very, very good European team. Again, one of the very few years where they're probably better than you if you're looking at it from the American perspective. Dustin Johnson is out for the Americans because he's been, you know, shallow suspended by the PGA Tour. Matt Kuchar gets hurt at the PGA Championship. Jason Duffner is going to have to withdraw and there's no Tiger. So what do you do? Well, If you're PGA of America President Ted Bishop, you start to get an idea. The last few Ryder Cup captains have been guys who are at the end of their professional playing career. Guys in their 40s and 50s, still connected to the players. You know, it's not true anymore, but at that time, winning a PGA championship was pretty much a prerequisite to being captain on the American side. And if you're looking in that direction, someone like David Tom's seems like the likely choice. Bob Herrig of ESPN at the time outlined a couple other choices. You had Larry Nelson, a bit older, but certainly deserving. In fact, he was, at the time, the only American ever to go 5-0 in all five sessions at a Ryder Cup. Dustin Johnson equaled that at Whistling Straits. You know, maybe Fred Couples, who everybody loves, but he was the President's Cup captain in 2013. And there's absolutely no way the PGA of America, which runs the U.S. side of things in the Ryder Cup, is going to pick the same captain as the PGA Tour, You know, I say that with some irony because they have since. Things have changed. But at the time, that was kind of the deal. Maybe Paul Azinger is being considered. He was probably America's best captain ever. He was terrific in 2008 at Valhalla. He embarrassed Nick Faldo with the job he did. But forget these guys. Because Ted Bishop, as he's going to prove over and over, is a little bit of a maverick. And he likes being a maverick. On the heels of this devastating loss at Medina, he kind of has a mandate to do what he wants, to shake things up. And what he knows for sure is that he's got to do something different. Here's what Tim Rosefort wrote for Golf Digest that December in 2012. Quote, The one criticism I keep hearing about the United States in Ryder Cup competition is too much deferring by the captain, too much a team by committee. I also keep hearing the PGA of America and its new president, Ted Bishop, wants to shake things up. So what better way to go back in time than bring back Tom Watson, which my sources say they plan to do, end quote. Fort was exactly right. And in theory, you have to say this makes some sense. You know, for a lot of this podcast, we're going to be operating with 2020 historical hindsight, right? As we're saying this and as we're listening, we know what happened to Tom Watson at Glen Eagles but I think it's important when we can to take the contemporary view here and at least try to understand the decision-making. So, we know the U.S. cannot win in Europe, and here you have a guy who is basically worshipped in Scotland, who won what might be the greatest major mano-a-mano fight ever against Jack Nicholas at Turnberry in 1977, the Duel in the Sun. He's got five open championships, and he's basically as Scottish as one man can get while still being American. So maybe that's something. He's definitely a take-charge guy, an alpha male. So if you think, you know, these modern golfers are coddled and there's too much kumbaya and they need a sort of firm hand or a stern father figure who's going to whip him into shape, this could be your guy. And how about this? We already said the last time the U.S. won on European soil was 1993 at the Belfry. Who was the captain then? It was Tom Watson. Bingo. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? And in the European line of succession, it looks like their captain is probably going to be the Irishman Paul McGinley. From a playing perspective, you just can't compare the two. McGinley has never won a major. In modern history, he's got the worst resume of any captain on either team. And imagine what the Europeans are going to think if you announce Tom Watson as your guy. Now, that's rattling their cages. That is a psychological blow two years before anyone even hits a shot. So Tom Watson gets the nod on December 13th. That's 2012. And he says a lot of the right things in his press conference. He calls himself a stage manager, identifies his job as supporting the players, giving them the right environment to go out and win. He acknowledges the tremendous pressure they're facing, and he paints himself as a kind of steward. Okay. Then Ted Bishop told the story of how he came up with Watson. And here's Bishop, quote, I remember I got home and I called Huber on Saturday. Now, parenthetically, he's referring to Jim Huber, a writer who had actually written a book about Tom Watson. Bishop continues, quote, And I said, Jim, I have a really out-of-the-box concept I would like to throw at you just to get your opinion. I said, what would you think of Tom Watson as a Ryder Cup captain in Scotland in 2014? And there was this deafening silence, and Jim came back and he said, you know what? That's a brilliant idea. That idea is absolutely brilliant. End quote. And I think that little story that Bishop tells at the press conference with Watson might say something about the character of Ted Bishop. Maybe not only does he like the idea of having this wild concept and he likes the idea that it might make him look good, that he might get praised for it, but he asks somebody who he knows is probably going to be a favorable audience. You know, a guy who wrote a book about Tom Watson. And then when he tells the story, he does that thing. We all know people who do it. We've probably done it ourselves where he gives himself a compliment through the voice of another person. You know, absolutely brilliant idea. And you look at that presser, and most of it's pretty standard. But looking back, I thought this quote from Watson was interesting. When a reporter asked him a fair question, you know, why has America lost seven of the last nine of these things? Here's what Watson said, quote, Well, as Jim Colbert said in the players' meeting in front of Dean Beeman a long time ago, when players were complaining about certain things that were going on in the tour, he got up in front of all the players and he said, you know what your problem is? Play better. And that's essentially the same thing. The Europeans have outplayed us. End quote. And everybody in the room, you know, kind of laughed at that story. But here we have our first example of what I spoke about earlier. This simple, very American at the time concept of folks, we just got to play better. No deeper explanation. And another interesting thing comes when Watson preemptively addresses the question of his age. Is he too old? And he said, quote, we play the same game. Well, that may be true. But what would become clear is that even though he played the same game as the younger Americans, they occupied a very, very different world. And there's not going to be a lot of mutual understanding there, to put it mildly. And we get a hint, too, from this press conference that their idea of shaking things up is not really sophisticated. It's basically just Watson being Watson. You know, with Bishop and with Watson, too, it's almost like they believe that the victory was in making the decision and not in the planning that has to come next. Watson's just going to go with his gut. He's going to know things in a way that others don't know them. And he's going to command respect by the gravitas of who he is being John Wayne, being the quintessential American hero. Well, it turns out that's not going to work. And then there's the small matter of Paul McGinley, this potential captain. He hasn't been named yet. This no name who they think they're going to blow out of the water with this major announcement of Tom Watson. Well, it turns out this guy's a thinker. He's going to prepare for this Ryder cup. Like nobody has ever prepared before. And on the European side, that is a high bar to clear, we should say. And he's going to do it brilliantly. And he's going to adopt a humble, low profile, so much so that it nearly cost him the captaincy early on. But beneath that veneer, his brain is always churning. And when Tom Watson, the American hero beloved in Scotland, finally goes to Glen Eagles in the fall of 2014, he has absolutely no idea what's about to hit him. Now, okay, in hindsight, it's easy to look at this idea as pretty ridiculous, this Watson captaincy concept. We know what happened with him. We know Ted Bishop became notorious and essentially you know, deeply harmed his reputation. Let's put it that way. And it's easy to look at the concept they had now and say, look, this was always doomed to fail. And we're not wrong to do that, I don't think. Some of it was very superficial. Yes, Tom Watson was a great player, but if you know anything about sports... There's zero evidence that being a great player makes you a great manager or coach or captain. It doesn't work that way. In baseball, they even have an expression that backup catchers make the best managers. It's funny to to say that because Paul McGinley was, you know, backup catcher might be harsh, but it was (laughs) closer to his role than superstar as a player. But there's a pretty good argument to be made that greatness as a player might actually limit the scope of what you can do as a coach because... Let's say you're Tom Watson. How do you explain genius to somebody who's not a genius? Then there's this idea that, you know, Watson is a hero in Scotland. Okay, yeah, true. But so what? What does that have to do with the Ryder Cup? The fans might give him a nice ovation on the first day. In fact, they did. But does that really mean anything? Is that really going to affect how anybody plays? And in terms of Watson being this great motivator, that seems pretty shaky, too. He's not dealing with his peers. He's not even dealing with guys who were young players when he was in his last days as a star. Guys like Jordan Spieth, Bubba Watson, Ricky Fowler, Phil Mickelson. These are extremely talented players, guys with egos, guys who might look at Tiger Woods with a certain awe and reverence. In fact, we know they do. But are they going to do it for Tom Watson? Can he really motivate them with what? Speeches, standing there looking stoic? And does he really know them? Will he take the time to get to know them? And one other thing that's worth mentioning, the thesis behind this whole thing is that you've got to shake things up. That's the sort of Ted Bishop, Tom Watson, PGA of America school of thought. Hard to argue that when you've lost seven of nine. Okay, let's give them that. But it's worth saying that Davis Love did a pretty darn good job on Friday and Saturday at Medina, which are the two days when the captain has the most control. Everyone played well. The pairs worked. The players loved him. Then Sunday comes, and of all the bad losses America has taken, and there have been some humiliating ones, this is the one where you go, well, really, when we take a step back, that is just bad luck. Again, you can nitpick his decisions that Sunday. Davis Love the First will admit that, you know, he should have top-loaded the lineup, sure, but this is singles. And so, you know, so much has got to go wrong to lose that big a lead that at the end of the day, you can't call it anything but a fluke. So do you really need to shake up what Davis Love did? From where I'm sitting, you know, years into the future, that seems dubious. I mean, Love, here's a guy who gets the nod again in 2016, does just as great a job, you know, Friday and Saturday, and this time there's no fluke on Sunday. He's learned a little bit, and the Americans win going away. So maybe instead of tossing everything away, you say, hey, what did Davis do right at Medina before this insane, ahistorical finish? But that's not what they did. So even without hindsight, and we're operating with a lot of hindsight, but even without that, my opinion is that all these arguments they put forward for Watson, well, when you start to look close, they look pretty flimsy. Nobody on Europe is going to be in awe of Paul McGinley, not even close. All of them, pretty much to a man, already have better playing resumes than McGinley, but the point is McGinley knows that. He doesn't plan to use that kind of gravitas, and his strategy is entirely different. Tom Watson, though, when he doesn't get the respect he thinks he's due from these guys that he thinks he deserves, well, the whole thing is going to shatter because he doesn't have an intricate plan to fall back on. He only has himself, his aura, his mystique, whatever you want to call it, and that's not going to be good enough, not even close. But the other idea, the idea that they had that merely announcing him as captain is going to put the fear of God into Europe, is going to intimidate them, that they're going to start thinking, oh no, they've got Tom Watson and we're putting out who, Paul McGinley? Well, guess what? That idea? I don't know how it sounds now, but that idea almost worked. Now, one thing you have to know about me, if it's not already obvious, and it probably is, I'm a Paul McGinley guy. I think he was a brilliant captain. You know, I wrote it at the time when I covered Glen Eagles. It was obvious just how good he was when that cup ended. Then I sat down with him for three hours at the Players' Championship in, you know, the COVID year. This is like the day before everything, you know, the world paused for a book interview. You know, I thought he was very smart, very engaging. Everything he told me about the Ryder Cup not only confirmed what I thought about him, but added to it. And on a personal level, I can admit I just like the guy. I can't help it, which doesn't mean I won't evaluate him honestly, but I'm also not trying to hide anything here. I'm a McGinley guy. I'm not sure how a Ryder Cup fan could be anything but, but there you go. But this announcement about Watson in December 2012, for a second, it really did look like it might tank McGinley's candidacy. There's an Irish writer, Paul Kimmage, who does these tremendous interviews with Irish athletes. You know, I've read most of them. I'm sure I've missed a few because it's, you know, I don't subscribe to The Independent his paper, but I've read a lot of them and they're all very good. And if a Paul Kimmage interview comes out with an Irish golfer, it's required reading for me. I think they might be some of the best sports interviews I've ever read. And he gets a lot out of these guys, which if you're like me, coming from America and used to mountains and mountains of boilerplate, you know, very cautious kind of guarded athletes, it's pretty astounding how deep Kimmage gets. Makes me envious, actually. Although, you know, I got a taste of it when I interviewed McGinley. Maybe part of it is just that the Irish are good talkers. You know, I have an Irish name, so I'm allowed to say that. But anyway, a lot of the details about the European captaincy drama that we're about to go into here come from an interview Kimmage did with McGinley. and It's only right that I tip my cap sort of in advance here. So let's talk about Paul McGinley. This is a guy who grew up in Dublin. His folks were from Donegal in Western Ireland. They met at the dances there back when you you could meet at dances. But McGinley grew up in Dublin. His dad was part of the Royal Merchant Navy. But by the time McGinley was born, you know, he worked for Phillips repairing televisions. And the family lived in a south side suburb of Dublin that was called Rathfarnham. The main thing you have to know about McGinley as a kid is that he loved sports. and His favorite sport was football. When I say that, I obviously don't mean American football, but I also don't mean soccer, which is, of course, called football in many parts of Europe, including England. I'm talking about Gaelic football, a sport that is all Irish, pretty much exclusively Irish. And without getting too deep into the details, you can maybe best understand it as a sort of combination of soccer and rugby. But McGinley was a really good player. Not a great one, but a very good one. And his dream was always to play for Dublin. Now, in Gaelic football, you play for your county team. And it's a very, very big deal. I've been over there before hearing the news reports. It's, it's hard to imagine. It's like, you know, the, the all-county championship in Gaelic football is like our Super Bowl. And McGinley's dad was a good player. He actually played for County Donegal, And McGinley himself was close to making the Dublin team, never quite got there. And then at age 19, in a practice, he shattered his knee. And I mean shattered. The patella was completely wrecked, fragments everywhere, torn cartilage, the whole nine yards. The doctor told him he'd never play again. And this isn't one of those you know, redemption stories you hear all the time where the doctor tells you, oh, you'll never do this again and you end up proving him wrong. No, the doctor was exactly right. Paul McGinley was not going to play competitive Gaelic football ever again. And just like that, McGinley went from a three months a year golfer, a guy with a six handicap, to someone who started playing constantly because he loved sports. And now this was the only option. So how do you get from there, from a six handicap at age 19, which is, you know, old to be, Taking golf that seriously for the first time. How do you get from there to becoming a professional when you're starting again at such a late age? Every golfer I've ever heard of has committed to golf far earlier than that. And when I interviewed McGinley, I thought he gave a, a neat answer. He said, quote, I think more than anything, it's competitiveness. I look back in my career. I look back on my younger self. And what I see is not a huge amount of talent. I had more talent playing Gaelic football than I did playing golf. That's for sure. But what I did see was ambition, a lot of ambition, ambition to get out of Ireland, ambition to travel the world, ambition to be a noise, end quote. And I mentioned the Gaelic football stuff too, because I think it's important to understand his background in team sports. That's part of what made him such a good Ryder Cup captain. Golf is an individual sport. You hear it all the time. And from my own experience, a lot of golfers I've talked to hated team sports when they were younger because they didn't like that a teammate could let you down. These are control freaks. And in a team sport, you are not in total control. You're depending on other people. But McGinley was cut from a different cloth, and that becomes a big deal. It's also worth noting that the idea of representing where you came from, in this case it would have been his county, is imprinted on him from a very young age. To him, that is the pinnacle of sports, because that's how Gaelic football works. And when the Ryder Cup begins, one of the key ways he tried to reach his players is by telling them they're not just playing for Europe, which is a big entity. You know, I mean, a impersonal entity in some ways and one that, you know, look, I'm not from there, but I would imagine the concept of a continent doesn't inspire a ton of loyalty if you're from Germany or England or whatever. But now he's getting in their ear and saying, Martin Keimer, you're representing Germany. You're representing your town, your golf club, and on and on. So he makes it personal that way because that's what he knows. So McGinley takes up golf full-time, obviously becomes very good at it, has a good career. He won some Irish amateur championships. He played on the 1991 Walker Cup team, made the European Tour, won four events on the European Tour in his career, won the World Cup of Golf for Ireland, won some Irish PGA championship, never won a major came close once, maybe with a T six at the PGA in 2004 and reached a peak of 18th in the world ranking. So this is a legitimate you know player. He's a very legitimate professional, but there's always something there stopping him from being truly great. And in the interview with Kimmage, here's how McGinley put it quote. If I was more selfish, I would have probably been a better player. My aspirations were to play in all the majors in the Ryder Cup. I didn't aspire to win major championships. I didn't think I could win major championships. Wish I had done. I wish I had more ambition and rawness and that fuck you attitude because my game got close enough to win major championships, but I don't think my mind ever did. End quote. Now that's fascinating. And if I asked you to go find a current or former player who would be that honest and that's sort of intuitive about their own process. Well, you'd have a really hard time finding someone like that, I think. And at the same time that McGinley's career is going on, Darren Clark, his good friend, two years younger and from Northern Ireland, is moving up the ranks. And there's another guy from McGinley's town, Rathfarnham. He's five years younger. McGinley remembers this guy growing up as the youngest of a bunch of brothers, gangly kid who played Gaelic football because he basically had to, but it wasn't very good. Wasn't anywhere near as good as McGinley, and that player is Patrick Harrington. So Clark is winning WGC events, winning a slew of European tour events, wins a major in 2011 at the British Open. Harrington, of course, transforms from a guy who McGinley describes as having a big heart and a great short game, but not much else, into a top five golfer in the world and a three-time major champion. So these are the guys he is contrasted with as an Irishman. These are his contemporaries. And McGinley isn't an envious guy, but it's also true that he's always in the shadows. But here's what McGinley did do. He played in three Ryder Cups and he won them all. Not only that, but in 2002, his Sunday singles match with Jim Furyk came to the 18th hole all square with Europe at 14 points and needing just a half point to win. The other matches on the course were still uncertain at that time. And long story short, McGinley had a putt of about 12 feet to have the match and win the Ryder Cup for Europe. And with all eyes on him, he nailed it. To hear him tell it later, he felt the putt completely, knew the break, the speed, everything exactly, and hit the perfect putt. And just like that, he etches a place for himself in golf history. And maybe it was the first sign of what we'd learned again in 2014, which is that when you put Paul McGinley on a team, not out in his own team, but on a team, well... He knows what to do, and he's probably going to win. He plays in the next two Ryder Cups also. They're both blowouts in Europe's favor. And soon after, he starts to get into the Ryder Cup captaincy pipeline. One thing a lot of people don't know, I didn't know it until recently, is that he was slotted to be one of Nick Faldo's vice captains in Valhalla in 2008. And McGinley backed out of that one early. My interpretation of that, and this is, you know, my interpretation only, is that he could probably smell the failure from a million miles away and wanted absolutely no part of it. Now, if you ask him, he puts it in a nicer way. He says Faldo was his own man, had some of his own ideas about how to captain, wasn't adhering to the famous template that had been so successful for the Europeans, and it was just better for him to be on his own. Either way, he got off that sinking ship early, but he was part of the players committee that decided on Ryder Cup captains. He had a massive influence on making sure the next captain was Colin Montgomery and not Sandy Lyle, who they were afraid was another Faldo type potentially. And in the meantime, while all this is happening, he captained the Great Britain and Ireland team in something called the Seve Trophy. The Seve Trophy for years wasn't around anymore. Now it's back as of this year. It's called the Hero Cup now. But it was only in existence from 2000 to 2013 originally. And it was this Ryder Cup style event that pitted Great Britain and Ireland against continental Europe. So in 2009, McGinley captains against Thomas Bjorn with a team that includes Rory McIlroy, Graham McDowell, and, you know, not much else. And he wins in a blowout. The players liked the job he did so much that they chipped in and they bought him a watch. And it was basically an unqualified success. In 2011, he captains again, this time against John Velde. Once again, his team is significantly worse, and he wins anyway. And an interesting little nugget there is that Darren Clark wanted to be the 2011 SEVI Trophy captain, but that July, guess what happens? He wins his first major at Royal St. George. And that changes things totally, because now he's got other things on his mind. The captaincy for him is not happening anymore, so... Along with being a vice-captain to Montgomery at the 2010 Ryder Cup, which Europe wins, McGinley gets to captain the Seve Trophy again. McGinley himself says that if Clark didn't win that Open, he probably never gets the 2014 Ryder Cup captaincy. So, he takes the Seve Trophy, and I'm going to quote McGinley now and how he felt after those two wins. Quote, Fuck me, this is coming easy to me. I'm loving this. I can win a Ryder Cup because I've just proved it here. Along with all this experience, tried and tested here, then done my vice captaincies, I'm fucking ready. There's nobody more prepared than me to step up to the next level. End quote. And that seems to be a consensus at the time among the important people in the Team Europe camp. And that was kind of the brilliance of the SEVI trophy in a lot of ways is that it was a not just a good competition, but a testing ground both for players and captains. And it's why they brought it back, by the way, this year. So Everything's kind of, you know, rolling out. The the captaincy pipeline is unfolding. 2012 is going to be Jose Maria Olathabo's year at Medina. We know it happened there. And McGinley is looking very likely as the candidate for 2014. He's proved himself, and he deserves it. Now, as I've alluded to, there's more drama to come before he gets the job. But I do want to pause here to make a point. I'm telling you this story about how Paul McGinley gets to be Ryder Cup captain for Europe, And it's a story of a line of succession, of being tested in the SEVI Trophy, as a vice captain in the Ryder Cup, of learning the system, of being a part of it, of essentially being groomed for the job. By the time he takes over, everybody knows he can do it. And they know that because he's been battle-tested for years. Now, I want you to contrast that with what's happening in America. What's the system in America? Well, right now, it's one man, Ted Bishop, and he has the unilateral power to pick one other man for reasons that are, well... At least unproven. That's the generous, you know, way to describe it. You could substitute it in some other words and maybe you'd be closer to the truth. And I was thinking about it, and really it's the difference between a meritocracy on one hand, let's say, you know, someone becomes a general in the army because he's battle tested and has earned that trust. People know he can lead in a you know in a military situation, and a theocracy on the other, where oh, you get to be a general because you were born as the king's cousin. Now, which one do you think is going to be the better general? It's not a perfect comparison because Tom Watson was a great player. But as we're about to learn yet again, that has very little to do with whether you're a great leader. Nevertheless, this is 2023 logic. This is hindsight. And at the time, the choice of Watson did rattle some people on Team Europe. Starts with Darren Clark. Now, Clark and McGinley at this point are great friends. They came up together. Clark was obviously the more successful golfer. He was hungrier, as McGinley admits. But they stayed very close. You know, so close, in fact, that in 2006, when Darren Clark's wife passed away, McGinley actually withdrew from the PGA Championship you know, to go to the funeral. So there's this tension about who's going to be captain. You know, McGinley has more experience. Clark has more stature as the recent Open champion. But Clark does a really nice thing in the lead-up. After the 2011 SEVI Trophy... He sends a letter to McGinley saying he doesn't want to be captain. He's stepping back. It's no problem. It belongs to McGinley if he can go out and get it. And you have to imagine for McGinley, that is a huge relief. You know, Darren Clark, as we saw, he, you know, he could just get the captaincy two years later. He got it in 2016 at Hazeltine. If McGinley doesn't get it in 2014, he's probably never going to have another chance. So again, it's easy to imagine his relief when he gets this letter, but then imagine how he must have felt after the 2012 Ryder Cup when Darren Clark changes his mind. All of a sudden, Darren Clark wants to stand. He wants to be the captain. And in October, about a month after the Medina Ryder Cup is over, Lee Westwood comes out in support of Clark. And mind you, this is before Tom Watson is even announced. But Clark is, at this point, starting his campaign in earnest, and he's got one of England's you know biggest names, Westwood, a Ryder Cup legend, in his corner. I'm going to quote now from the Kimmage interview when Kimmage says to McGinley you know, when that happens there has to be part of you thinking what the fuck is going on here? and McGinley answers, of course there is but I'd rather not talk about it I've moved on from it and unfortunately friendships have dot 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 end quote that says a lot doesn't it and when Watson's name is announced there are various quotes about you know, his place in the game kind of, you know Implication by comparison that McGinley doesn't have the same place. And in December, Colin Montgomery says that he thinks Darren Clark is the slight favorite. But it gets worse because Clark's campaign actually doesn't last very long. By early January 2013, a few weeks before they're going to make the decision, he's out. Doesn't want to do it. Thinks maybe he can make the team. You know, isn't so keen on punting the next two years of his playing life anymore and he withdraws. So thread over, right? But no, here's the kicker. When he withdraws, he gives his support not to his friend, not to Paul McGinley, but to Colin Montgomery. Now, I'm going to quote at length here from Paul Kimmage's interview with McGinley, and it's a little bit weird to do that. The format is weird, but I, I think this exchange is so poignant and so pertinent that it's worth it in this case. So This is a back and forth, you know, so here's, here's how it starts. Kimmage says to him, you know, you said at the start of the interview, you haven't told any lies, but you told one lie. McGinley says, go on. Kimmage, the lie was an answer you gave at the press conference straight after you'd been awarded the captaincy quote at no stage did I have a problem with Darren standing, but you did have a problem with him standing. McGinley says, I didn't Kimmage. Not at all. McGinley. I wouldn't say not at all. Are you quoting me on this Kimmage, which I love says, yeah, McGinley goes it wasn't for me to tell Darren he can't stand he wrote the letter a year before but was totally entitled to change his mind Kimmage but there must have been a part of you that felt betrayed McGinley you're saying that Kimmage it would only be natural McGinley I'm not disagreeing with you Kimmage says when is the last time you spoke to him McGinley I saw him in Turin last week did you speak to him yeah Kimmage did you tell him he was not going to be one of your vice captains McGinley no Kimmage, you never felt you had to make that call. McGinley says, no. Kimmage, it was obvious it wasn't going to happen. McGinley, yeah. Our conversations now are short and sweet. How are you? Fine. Move on. Kimmage, that's kind of hard given how far you've come together. McGinley, yeah. And those great experiences you've shared? Yeah, but you know what? It happens in all walks of life. Whether you're a businessman, a journalist, or a golfer, it's what happens. You move on. And Kimmage says, because the killer blow wasn't when Darren decided to stand against you. It was when he withdrew and rode in behind Monty, someone he didn't actually like. McGinley smiles, but does not reply. Kimmage says, I'll take that as an acknowledgement. McGinley says, now that was different. When you say you told a lie, I didn't tell a lie. Kimmage, you'll have to explain that to me. McGinley, the answer I gave at the press conference was that I didn't have a problem with Darren standing. Kimmage, you weren't asked if you had a problem with him rowing in behind Monty McGinley. No, Kimmage says. So you didn't tell a lie, and McGinley says, "Checkmate." And that's the end of that exchange. And you know, remember when I told you this was a melodramatic rider couple? Well, there you go. There's a friendship absolutely torpedoed. And McGinley's being a little coy there. You know, he's playing some rhetorical games, but you kind of dig through the semantics, and it's obvious his friend betrayed him, and he's hurt. So the committee to decide the next captain is going to meet in Abu Dhabi in mid-January. And for a while, it looks like Montgomery's in the lead. And I don't know if I blame Montgomery the way I, you know, you might want to blame Clark. Montgomery and McGinley aren't great friends. Montgomery, you know, has his ego. Of course he wants this. And he probably also knows that the way things are going, this is going to be his last chance. He won his captain in 2010. If McGinley gets this one, you know, Clark's going to get the next one, almost certainly. And by 2018, a whole new generation is going to be in charge. Montgomery is never going to captain again. So all of a sudden you have this opportunity kind of out of nowhere. You know, why not? Why not step in and try to seize it? And one of the really big things that happens is that before this meeting, Rory McIlroy sends a tweet. And this tweet says, Ryder Cup captaincy should be a one-time thing. Everybody deserving gets their chance and moves on. Would love to play under Paul McGinley in 14. Well, that is massive. This is Roy McElroy. When he tweets that out, Luke Donald and Justin Rose quickly follow with their own show of support. So does Ian Poulter. And, you know, you're getting quotes from Thomas Bjorn all of a sudden, the chairman of the committee, who's going to decide. Now he's saying, quote, we don't have to react to Tom Watson's appointment as Europe's record in the past years is pretty impressive, end quote. So at that point, you can start to see, you know, hinging on this Rory McIlroy tweet, the Tom Watson fever is breaking. So they have this meeting in Abu Dhabi. They ask Montgomery and McGinley to leave the room. McGinley waits with his brother for 10 minutes in his hotel room. Rory and Shane Lowry come to keep him company because they know he's probably anxious beyond belief. They lay on his bed. They're all eating oatmeal cookies. And about a half hour goes by, they ask him to come back to the big meeting room, and Bjorn says, you're captain. So there it is. Didn't come easy, but he's got the job. And there's a neat story to illustrate the you know, stature difference between him and Watson, even between him and Montgomery, which is that a few months later, McGinley is taking a vacation in San Diego, and he strikes up a conversation in an elevator with an American from Boston who's wearing a Medina hat. And the guy is thrilled to meet an Irishman. You know, he's got all kinds of Irish roots like a lot of us do. And McGinley sees the hat and he says to him, you know, did you go to Medina? The guy says, I've been going to Ryder Cups for 20 years. It's the greatest event of all time. So they're getting off the elevator and McGinley asks him, are you going to Glen Eagles? And the guy says, of course I am. We've got an Irish guy as captain. How can I miss it? And the guy asks McGinley, are you going? And McGinley says, yeah, you know, I might go. And this is a massive American golf fan. This is not just some, you know, layperson in the street. He has absolutely no idea he's talking to Paul McGinley. In every Ryder Cup cycle, there are certain exciting milestones. Picking the captains is one. And after that, there's a lot of behind-the-scenes preparation. Some of it's very boring, you know, choosing the uniforms, stuff like that. Some of it's pretty intriguing, actually. But the next thing the public sees and what we're going to jump to now are the captain's picks. That's really the big decision, the next big decision that McGinley and Watson have to make. And it doesn't happen for almost two more years. It's September 2nd, 2014, just a few weeks before the Ryder Cup when they each make their announcements. And when they do, there is an enormous difference in how they do it. McGinley's press conference could not be more understated. Happened in the afternoon European time, so it came on early in America. And from the time they started the production, not even McGinley, I'm talking about when they actually went live to the time McGinley announced the picks took exactly ninety seconds. Two of his picks are no surprise. One is Stephen Gallagher, who was next in the World points category. You know, it's kind of a weird system Europe has where you have two lists. You have your European points and your world points. It's designed to make sure that, you know, European tour players are rewarded and not just sat behind the guys who play in America. But anyway, Long story short, Stephen Gallagher is next on the list. He's Scottish. The Ryder Cup is going to be in Scotland. There are no other Scottish players on the team. Probably always a slam dunk that he was going to be in there. And by the way, McGinley said at the time and still says he would have picked Gallagher regardless. When I asked him, he talked about, you know, his par five scoring average, but he also did admit that he wasn't going to get, quote, stick for picking him, right? It would be a popular choice. So being Scottish was at least influential, but not decisive. Second pick is Ian Poulter, one of the great Ryder Cup players of his generation, one of the greatest ever. It's another no-brainer. But the third is interesting. The third, almost everyone thinks, and by the way, there were only three picks, so when I say third, I mean, you know, third and final at the time. It's coming down to Luke Donald and Lee Westwood. Donald was actually higher on the world points list. He was right behind Gallagher. He was ahead of Ian Poulter, well ahead of Westwood. Both have been very good in past Ryder Cups. And remember, the minute Darren Clark announced that, yeah, I want to be captain of this thing, Lee Westwood got right behind him. And Luke Donald supported McGinley after Rory did. So there's a loyalty thing there, too, potentially. But McGinley throws everyone a curveball and picks Westwood. And for him, it's all about form, you know, because Westwood had been better, played well at the Bridgestone WGC, played well at the PGA Championship. So, you know, tactically and, and theoretically and all that, it's a good pick. But it shows you again about McGinley, the man, his personal relationship with Luke Donald, you know, Westwood going for Clark. None of that is going to matter to him. So the picks are made. It takes 90 seconds. And that night in America, there's a Golf Channel special for the U.S. Captain's picks. It's hosted by Julius Mason, who's very, very good at what he does. Very smooth, good looking guy, skilled with the media. He's kind of the face of the PGA of America for the Ryder Cup and the PGA Championship. He's one of those guys where if you could get him to tell you what he's seen behind the scenes at all these Ryder Cups, it would be fascinating. You could write the best book ever about it. So you have Mason hosting doing his usual great job, but Tom Watson kind of stumbles through this whole thing, this half hour special. And you have to know this is very, the the production is very ornate, you know, very, uh, there's a lot of hoopla in it in comparison to the press conference that McGinley did at Westworth. There's American flag imagery everywhere. They drag out the picks. They bring in the guys for interviews. You know, I called it at the time, low-rent reality TV. I think that's right still. But hey, who cares? Why not try it? His first two picks are Keegan Bradley and Hunter Mahan. Not much of a surprise there. But the third pick is Webb Simpson. And this is where things get, you know, stop me if you've heard this before, melodramatic again. Watson in the TV special describes a quote revelation he had that morning when he's looking at the stats and he sees that Webb has won with Bubba Watson at Medina twice. Now, do you think McGinley was having last-minute revelations or that he would have missed a successful partnership like that until the morning of the picks? Of course not. You know, this is Watson going by his gut. And also, incidentally, failing to mention that Simpson also lost with Bubba there and then lost a singles match, so he was two and two. Not terrible, but there's a little context. But he's not even telling the whole story because here's what happened, and it's a doozy. The so-called revelation came because Webb Simpson texted him that morning at about 4 a.m. from Denver, where the tour was that week, basically saying, you know, I know you have a hard decision, but I really want to play. Watson texts him back and says, yes, I do have a tough decision. But then a half hour later, he calls him and says, why should you be on the team? Well, as Jason Sobel, who worked for the Golf Channel at the time, reported, Webb makes his argument you know, about his passion, he wants redemption for Medina, et cetera. By the end of the call, and again, this is the day of the captain's picks, that morning, Watson tells him he's on the team. I mean, does that sound pretty bad yet? I, you know, I think it does, but it gets worse, because before talking to Simpson, Watson had already made his captain's picks. Alex Masselli at Golf Week was the one who broke this news eventually, after the Ryder Cup, that Watson had actually picked Bill Haas which is kind of a weird pick. You know, you had Billy Horschel, who just had a strong finish in Massachusetts. It was America's bad luck that he was about to win the FedEx Cup playoffs with two straight wins, but only after the deadline for the captain's picks. You also had Chris Kirk, who was playing well, but who absolutely refused to kiss the ring. When I talked to him the week before, he essentially refused to even concede that he even cared about the Ryder Cup. So knowing Watson, you know, he wasn't getting the pick, but Haas was 28th on the points list, didn't win that year, kind of a dark horse. But after picking him, Watson had called some players on his team Monday night, some of the automatic selections, and told them his three picks. So that Tuesday in Denver, they're all there for the BMW Championship. You know, hours before the announcement, everybody on the range seems to have known the three picks, Bradley, Mahan, and Haas. What they didn't know was about the text messages Simpson sent. And it's almost certain, you can't prove this, but you would have to think that Haas knew too, that somebody told him he was a pick. And then later that day, he has the rug pulled out from under him. And you have to wonder, you know, had somebody told Webb Simpson that Monday night before he texted about the text? Did he text as a way of trying to get Watson to change his mind successfully? You know, this is a giant cluster. You know what? It's unprofessional on Watson's behalf. It's embarrassing. And if it had been public at that point, it probably would have been the first indication to the wider world that maybe Tom Watson was not the man for this job. Now, let's give Webb Simpson a little bit of a break here because he was just trying to make the team. I actually had the chance to ask him about this in 2021 before the Whistling Straits Rider Cup. And here's what he said. Uh, and again, this is, you know, seven years later. Quote, would I do that again? I don't know. I was so, I guess, anxious about making that team in 2014. And maybe it was good and bad that I texted him. But in that moment, I felt like, I don't know Tom as well. I don't know if he knows how much I want to make this team. Stricker and I have texted, but I haven't sent that text like I sent to Tom. I think he knows how much I love team events. But also, I guess getting older, playing these events more, I have realized Stricker's going to pick who he feels is the best team for that week, and I trust that, end quote. So I, I think that's good context from, from Simpson. It's hard to really blame him for what he did, I think. You know, if you're going to blame somebody, obviously it's Watson here. And I want to fast-forward quickly a little bit out of order to the first day of the Ryder Cup itself. McGinley's first pairing is going to be Justin Rose and Henrik Stenson. Watson goes with Webb Simpson and Bubba Watson. And you have to wonder if it wasn't a statement from Watson in some way, like, this was my gut pick, you you know, people criticized it, and guess what? He's going to take the first swing. Well, that first swing was memorable. It went straight up into the air. He popped it up, arguably probably one of the worst opening shots in Ryder Cup history. And he and Bubba get absolutely crushed by Stenson and Rose, five and four. Again, though, that's getting slightly ahead of ourselves. We have more to say about Watson. But let's go back quickly to McGinley. I could talk, you know, for three hours about the insane, obsessive, in my mind, brilliant preparation McGinley undertook for this Ryder Cup after the captain's picks were over and, of course, before that, too. You'd probably get very bored and, you know, maybe be redundant at some point. So I'm going to restrain myself. But what I am going to do is trace one aspect of his preparation. And I'm going to do it through Graham McDowell. Because again, if I don't do it in microcosm, we're, you know, we quickly get lost in the details. But it turns out that McDowell was kind of the perfect example for this. And hopefully you'll see why. So traditionally what you see a lot in the run-up to a Ryder Cup is a captain playing with some of the players you know, at PGA Tour events, at European Tour events, pairing up with them and kind of scouting them up close, if you will, getting a sense of who they are. But McGinley had gone through that as a player. He hated it, thought it was counterproductive, too stressful in all the wrong ways. So he wasn't going to do that. What he wanted to do instead was control the draws on the European tour so he could pair guys together. You know, not him playing with them, but guys that might be on the team. The kicker is he didn't want the guys to know he was doing it. So he went to the European tour. He said, here's what I want to do. I want to get these guys playing together, see how it works. I don't want to wait to Glenn Eagles to match personalities. They said, absolutely not. He said, come on, you do it for TV, do it for me. They said, no, again, he said, I insist it goes all the way up to the top. They still don't want to do it. He argues some more. Finally, they say fine. So he gets that power to influence the draws, which is new. So when he has the chance, he's pairing guys together. And one of those pairs is Graham McDowell and Victor Dubuisson. Now, It's unfortunate we don't have more time because Victor de Buisson is generally one of the strangest figures probably in golf history. And you don't hear much about him anymore, but he was quite good at the time. He may be good again for all we know. French player, very private, very distrustful of everyone from the media on down, very skittish in some ways. You know, I talked to him once briefly and it always seemed like what he really wanted to do was kind of run away. Had disavowed his dad for various reasons. And by the way, parenthetically, his uncle... Du of Dubuisson is one of the greatest basketball players in French history. And he was always going to be an incredibly tough guy to captain. And McGinley's idea is that, okay, McDowell's a veteran. He's one of the most mature guys, very smart guy, one of the best interviews in golf, especially at the time. And he understands people. So this has the best chance of working out. So every time, every European tour event, when he can, he pairs McDowell with Dubuisson without McDowell knowing. And then he'll ask him afterward, Hey, You know, you played with Victor. What did you think of this guy? And McDowell doesn't hate him. And meanwhile, every time they play together, Victor, not a very comfortable guy around other people, is getting more and more comfortable with Graham McDowell. And along with the psychology aspect of it, McGinley has researched the stats. And at Glen Eagles, when they played the Johnny Walker event there, it's key on this course more than most to be great on the par fives. And three of those long par fives and another long par four are even numbered holes. And Dubuisson's long and McDowell's not. So if Victor's teeing off on those long holes in alternate shot, it's kind of perfect. Because McDowell needs to be playing with a long hitter. And Victor can, again, tee off in those holes and hide McDowell's distant shortcomings. So there's a lot of thought, you see. There's practical, there's psychological, all of it is coming into play. Two weeks before the Ryder Cup, McGinley sits down with Graham McDowell, and he likes Graham, they like each other, but he knows Graham has an ego, like a lot of players, and he's got a lot of bad news for him. First off, he tells him he only sees him playing three matches. Well, McDowell hates that. He's a U.S. Open champ, he's in good form. He wants to play all five if he can. Second, McGinley tells him he wants him to play with Victor DeBlisse on. And McDowell's verbatim response, according to McGinley, is, you're fucking kidding me. But he explains to him about the experience and how Victor respects him and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So McDowell starts to understand, and then McGinley hits him again. You're going to play in foursomes, which is alternate shot. Now, McDowell doesn't like this either. He prefers four ball. But again, McGinley explains about the par fives and how it works out in alternate shot really well. McDowell's not thrilled, so he says to McGinley, well, okay, I get all of this, but what about letting me play a fourth session, you know, a four ball session with Rose or Stenson or somebody like that? He knows all those guys from like Nona. Chemistry is no issue. But then McGinley plays to his ego. He's got a trump card. He tells McDowell, I want you to play number one singles on Sunday. And immediately, according to McGinley, McDowell sits up in his chair because this is a big deal. It's a big honor, particularly in Europe. And right away he asks, what does Rory say about that? Because he and Rory are not getting along at the time due to a business dispute. And his first thought is, well, Rory's won two majors. He's the number one player in the world. Isn't he going to revolt? Isn't he going to be mad about this? But of course, McGinley had already cleared it with Rory. Didn't tell McDowell that, but he told Rory, you know, the best players shouldn't be at number one singles because there's a lot of expectation and pressure for no good reason. Rory gets that. But for McDowell, getting out to go number one is its own very high honor. And you can't underestimate what it means either for him to be chosen over Rory, at least in his head. And so the deal McGinley strikes with McDowell is that if he toes the line, And really sacrifices those first two days, you know, playing with Dubuisson, only playing an alternate shot, only playing those two sessions. He's going out first in singles. And it does a good job of sating his ego, but it's not just to sate his ego. There's a bigger plan here. And he explains it to him. He knows that the Americans are likely to do one of two things in that number one slot on Sunday. Either they're going to put their top guy in the world rankings there, or they're going to put out someone who's been playing really well over the weekend. And in either case, it's likely that player will have played 72 holes, or at least 54. McGinley had a belief that nobody who played 72 holes should go out first, and that if he had a guy who had only played 36 holes, just 18 holes each day like McDowell was going to do, he's going to have a big advantage over someone who inevitably is going to tire out in that match. And there's something else too which McGinley plans for, which is that if he puts McDowell out first, and he puts Victor Dubuisson out last, well, when McDowell finishes, he can go right to Dubuisson and walk with him and guide him in and give him that comfort he so desperately needs, because Dubuisson's still going to be out in the course. So there is a very small slice of the McGinley blueprint viewed through the lens of Graham McDowell, and this is happening, you have to remember, with all his players from Rory on down. He's making connections with their teams, their agents, their caddies, trying to know everything, but dispensing only the information he needs to dispense based on the player. You know, it's remarkable just how deeply he's plotting this stuff. And again, I want to skip forward to the Ryder Cup itself just to show how this particular bit of strategy worked out. Friday, in afternoon foursomes, McDowell and Buisson beat Mickelson and Bradley, who you have to remember from Medina at this point are America's studs. They had won that morning. Saturday afternoon in foursomes, Buisson and McDowell absolutely annihilate Jimmy Walker and Ricky Fowler, who at that point had played three straight sessions, were playing their fourth and are exhausted. Sunday morning, McDowell goes out first. Who does he get? He gets Jordan Spieth, one of America's best players from the weekend, just like McGinley predicted. He had played 54 holes, not 72. That was mostly Watson's fault, as we'll see later. But Spieth takes an early lead, and guess what? He tires out. McDowell beats him 2-1, and right after McDowell wins, he goes to walk with Victor Dubuisson, who halves his match with Zach Johnson. Bing, bang, boom. For people who don't believe in the power of a captain, in the power of preparation and planning and strategy, and the massive influence it has, well, I would say look at the story of Paul McGinley, Graham McDowell, and Victor Dubuisson in 2014. All right, let's get to Glen Eagles officially. A couple interesting things happen in the immediate lead-up. With the press, McGinley is doing an act that you can best describe as, you know, Tom Watson is a living legend, and he's talking a lot about the European template, and that word, template, which a lot of people haven't heard before, becomes kind of a punchline in the press room because it's repeated so often, but rarely with any kind of detail, because of course McGinley and the Europeans don't want to give away their secrets... So we're just left with that word, and it becomes sort of an object of fun. But behind the scenes on Tuesday night, Sir Alex Ferguson, the legendary Manchester United manager, comes to speak to the team. And McGinley's invited him because, like Team Europe in 2014, he's a guy who had to win often at home as the favorite, and he understands those challenges. It's all on a theme here, and the theme extends to the locker room. McGinley is a big believer in the power of visual images, And he's got posters giving all kinds of messages from, you know, simple past highlights of his players to more subtle stuff, like one graphic image of a man rolling out a scroll of Ryder Cup victories dating back to 1927. And what that emphasizes is not the European recent success or that they're the favorites, but it emphasizes the overwhelming advantage America has had over the years. As in, you know, historically, look, these guys have kicked our butts. Don't get cocky. You know, the guy thought of everything, even the fish in the fish tank are blue and gold. And my favorite image and one that's going to resonate on Sunday is a big rock, all in European colors in the middle of a raging ocean storm. And the message underneath says, quote, we will be the rock when the storm arrives. You have a little bit of drama. There is a widely publicized lawsuit brewing between Graham McDowell and Rory McElroy. I'm not going to go into it too deeply, but the basics here are that Rory was suing his former agency, Horizon Sports Management. And one of the claims he made is that Graham McDowell got preferential treatment. And to prove that, you know, he wants the documents that go into the private details of McDowell's deal there. And there's some speculation that Rory's team dropped this lawsuit, you know, to coincide on purpose with Graham McDowell's wedding in the Bahamas. So it's contentious, even if publicly everybody's, you know, very nice But before the Ryder Cup, an American decides to stir the pot. And surprise, surprise, it's Phil Mickelson. Nobody really remembers this now because Mickelson is going to have a far more notorious moment before it's all over. But in his Wednesday press conference, Phil is asked about team chemistry. And he says, not only are we able to play together, we also don't litigate against each other. And that's a real plus, I feel, heading into this week. And everyone laughs and it's very funny. And Rory finds him that night at a private ceremony, makes sure he finds Phil, and he says, at least I'm not wanted by the FBI. And to some extent, this is all good natured, but obviously there's a little bit of underlying tension there. And what is Watson doing early that week? Well, he's in his element as the favored son of Scotland. His press conferences are good and funny. He and McGinley make a great pair when they speak together, and there is a spirit of optimism prevailing. Plans are starting to form. And again, Watson is constantly emphasizing the fact That things change during the Ryder Cup. Adjustments will have to be made. We already know this is a guy who will be using his gut to make decisions. That's why they chose him, okay? He's the last guy who won in Europe while everyone else failed. He's got a strong competitive instinct. He's an alpha male. And at the end of the day, he's going to trust that instinct to lead America. Like it or not, that is the approach. And On Friday morning, when we finally get to the action on the course, well, it seems like it's working. So this is the point where I get a little obnoxious. And I know what I'm about to say isn't possible for everyone. But if you can see a Ryder Cup, see one. And if you can see a Ryder Cup in Europe, see a Ryder Cup in Europe. It is a chilly Friday morning on September 26, 2014. There's frost on the ground. Some of the players are wearing gloves and winter hats. And even at 6 a.m. on the driving range, you can hear the slow building chant of Europe, Europe, coming from the first tee. It's packed there. It's electric. There's something primal, almost mob-like about it. There are songs and wisecracks and chants and just a wall of noise. Tom Watson gets the cheer you'd expect him to give him as a man who has won more open championships than any other American, almost more than any other golfer. He gets the cheer he deserves as a legend of the sport. Meanwhile, on Sky Sports, at that very moment, Colin Montgomery and Darren Clark... The two who did their best to sabotage McGinley's candidacy are going on air questioning him, calling his pairings a surprise and strange. Kind of interesting there. Webb Simpson hits the first shot of the Ryder Cup. About as bad as it can be. We already said that. Pop straight up in the air. But this is the four ball session where every player plays his own ball. And Bubba Watson comes up next. And he did something that he started in Medina spontaneously which was to actually encourage the crowd to cheer, in fact, to go wild while he's hitting his shot. It's very cool, no matter what you think of Bubba. It's one of those unique goosebump-inducing moments that can only happen in the Ryder Cup. And that was probably the best moment for the Americans in that particular match. They're going up against Justin Rose and Henrik Stenson. And if you look at the history of individual Ryder Cups, you're not going to find many pairs who played as well as Rose and Stenson played in 2014 at Glen Eagles. Three times they went out, three times they won, and this one was the easiest of them all. Five and four was the final score, and even that might not reflect how thoroughly they crushed the Americans. Things looked a little ugly for the Americans when Ricky Fowler and Jimmy Walker fell down big to Thomas Bjorn and Martin Keimer in the second match, but facing a two-down deficit heading into 16, Walker birdies that hole and then birdies 18 to force a very important half. Brings us to match three. And listen, under different circumstances, if things had played out better for the Americans, you might look to this as a really profound match and even a changing of the guard moment. For Europe, McGinley had put out Stephen Gallagher, Scottish native son, with Ian Poulter, the legend. Poulter's record speaks for itself. But Gallagher was an unknown quantity and he'd had a difficult few weeks. After making the team, he'd missed the cut at Wales, was having trouble adjusting to the Logistics of the Ryder Cup, apparently there was some issue with not knowing how many tickets he'd been allotted, and on top of all this, his grandmother had passed away. So whether it was stress, grief, nerves, or some combination, it was clear from the start that, to put it as nicely as possible, this guy just wasn't up for it, wasn't ready for the stage. McGinley would later look at that as his biggest mistake as a captain, that he didn't prepare Gallagher because he didn't think he'd make the team, By the time he got close enough, it was almost too late to fix that lack of preparation. And on the American side, you had Jordan Spieth, who had spent that year on the brink of winning some very big tournaments, including the Masters, and a young player whose biggest moment of fame at that point had been an offhand comment after winning the WGC at Donald Trump's course in Doral when he said that he considered himself a top-five golfer. Beyond that, the golf world still didn't know a whole lot about him, but... If they had studied up on Patrick Reed, they would have known that this guy had one of the most astounding match play careers in American college golf ever. Plenty dramatic, too, when after leaving the University of Georgia, he had gone to Augusta State, led them to two national titles, and beat Georgia in the championship match his senior season. But that Friday, he was more of an unknown quantity in his first Ryder Cup match ever. And in contrast to Stephen Gallagher, he was very much up for it. It's not even worth going into the details of this match, except to say that Poulter blew a short par put at the first, looked increasingly frustrated with himself and his partner, and that Spieth and Reed just stepped on the gas and never let up. It was an astounding first performance for them. And when Reed made birdie on number 11, the U.S. went six up. At that point, if you know match play, you know the drama is basically over. That's it. The final score was five and four, but the match was done well before then. To win a point is a big deal no matter what, but to collect a scalp like Ian Poulter and to do it by really, you know, embarrassing him in Europe, well, you can't put a price on that. In the anchor match, the news just kept getting better for the Americans. Phil Mickelson and Keegan Bradley, the stars of Medina, came to the 16th hole, one down against Rory McIlroy and Sergio Garcia. Bradley hit a beautiful approach, nailed the eagle putt, slapped fives with everybody who had come to watch, including Spieth and Reed, Mickelson buries the winner on the 18th and the Americans win again and they do it against the best player in the world. So after the slight disaster of Bubba and Webb leading off, it turned into a truly excellent morning for the Americans. And the session ended with the U.S. up two and a half to one and a half, really about as good as you can hope for. And I want you to remember that moment, because if you ask me, it's here, right here at the end of this session that Tom Watson let the Ryder Cup slip away. He had a plan And the plan was that Zach Johnson and Matt Kuchar would go out first in afternoon foursomes. Jim Furyk and Hunter Mahan would go out second. Then you'd have everyone with a match under their belts on day one, which is smart. You know, Mark James famously sat out all his rookies over the first two days at Brookline in 99, built up a good lead, and then watched those rookies and his own team get crushed on Sunday. So you want to get everyone involved. Very simple, but very true. That's a Ryder Cup rule. Okay, but what about the other two pairs after those guys? Well, Watson had told his team that he would base those picks on how the morning session went. And if you want to second-guess Tom Watson on the course, here's one where you can do it, and it's pretty dang hard for anyone to argue with you. Because if it's based on the morning sessions, well, guess what? You had two teams who won. You had Mickelson and Bradley, the Stars and Medina. Maybe you're going to put them out again, probably last. And if you don't, it's because Mickelson is dealing with some arthritis and you want to rest him. But first and foremost, you have the best team of all, Speeth and reed who only played 14 holes and are absolutely raring to go mickelson and bradley did get that last spot but when reed and spieth approached watson they were shocked to hear they weren't going out it was walker and fowler again who had gone the distance and have their first match Speeth is kind of a pro's pro even then that was true he was stunned but he said okay fine and reed did too at first and then it began to eat at him. And before Watson could get away, he said, actually, I'm not all right with it. Later, Jordan Spee said to the press, I 100% assumed we were going back out. And because what Captain Tom said was, we'll have our other two afternoon pairings based on how the morning's going. So what was Watson thinking? What's interesting is that we don't quite know, even still. He came into the press room later that afternoon. He knew he'd be asked the question, so he answered it before anyone could ask. And here's what he said, quote, The players themselves are disappointed. I know the question is going to be asked about Jordan Spieth and Patrick Reed, whether I should have played them in the afternoon. And I thought at the time it was the best decision not to play them. There were a variety of reasons, but I won't go into those. It was a decision that my vice captains and I made. That was a decision we felt very strongly for. You can't play everybody. You're going to be second guess. And obviously you're going to second guess me on that decision right there. End quote. But he wouldn't elaborate. When people asked, it was always private team details. You know, I'm not going to tell you. And by the time the Ryder Cup was over, there were bigger things for the media to ask about. So it you know kind of gets forgotten. But it shouldn't be because, again, my opinion is that this is a huge, huge moment. So here comes the afternoon. Alternate shot. The Americans are winning, but McGinley's ready. He's got Lee Westwood and Jamie Donaldson. Remember, Westwood is the captain's pick. He took over Luke Donald to everybody's surprise and who he's been grooming for a long time to be the sort of mentor to Jamie Donaldson, a rookie. They're up against Furyk and Kucher. and unlike the Poulter-Gallagher pairing earlier, this one works. They win two up. Next, you've got Rose and Stenson again. Forget it, they're not losing. Not now, not all week. They beat Mahan and uh, Johnson two and one. Third match, it's Rory and Sergio again, up against Walker and Fowler. And here you have something pretty interesting that nobody can control for, which is the element of luck. Walker and Fowler play very well in this match. They get to be two up with two to play. It comes to 17, and Rory needs a 45-footer for birdie just to keep the match going. Almost impossible, but he's Rory. He's had a special year. You know, this is Rory at the peak. He won two majors that year, so of course, he stuns the Americans by making it. On the next hole, Sergio hits one of the approaches of the weekend from the right rough, a three-wood to the par five. Gets it to 25 feet. They two-putt for birdie. And the match goes from an American win to a half. It's an enormous swing moment because in the last match, Victor Dubuisson was under the care of Graham McDowell and he was absolutely on fire. He even egged the crowd on at one point when Mickelson and Bradley made them you know, take a short putt, which is very unlike Dubuisson. By the turn, they were three up and then they coasted to a three and two win. So the dust settles and Europe wins the session three and a half points to a half point. And they're now in the lead overall five to three. And everything about the morning, everything that was good for the Americans, it's gone. And in the presser, Watson doesn't have a clue how to explain himself. And he makes a sort of PR mistake when he calls Rory's long putt Watson-esque. A little bit of ego this team doesn't need to hear. And it comes in between him calling them out for their bad play. So you can start to see the beginning of friction. Saturday morning comes. We're back to four ball. You'll never guess who McGinley leads off with. It's Rose and Stenson. This time they're playing Bubba and Matt Kuchar, and it's the match of the weekend. It's important to remember that Bubba and Kuchar played well in this match, but Rose and Stenson at one point made 10 straight birdies. 10! Through 16 holes, they put up a record team score of minus 12, and there was just nothing the Americans could do. It's a complete onslaught. They play so well, nobody can stand up to them. It's a 3-2 and two win for Europe. In the middle matches, though, America roars back. Furick and Mahan beat Donaldson Westwood pretty thoroughly. Reed and Spieth are just as good as the day before, winning a blowout against Bjorn and Keimer. And Walker and Fowler have yet another half point, their third straight, when Ian Poulter holds the chip on 15 and a birdies again on 16 to keep Europe from losing that one. And we shouldn't overlook that moment either. If you ask Paul McGinley, what Poulter did is one of the biggest moments, not just of the day, but of the whole Ryder Cup. And he knows Poulter is off form. It's not him at his best, but In that one case, he rises to the moment, and McGinley says that's why he's Ian Poulter. That's why he'll go down in history as one of the greatest Ryder Cup players ever. But the headline is it's a good session for the Americans, and now they're down just a point. It's five and a half to six and a half to Europe. And on the wave of this optimism, a sense that maybe they've at least mitigated the nightmare of a day before, well, Watson strikes again. If Friday afternoon is where he starts to let the cup slip away, Saturday afternoon is where he loses it. Full stop. First off, after being questioned for playing Mickelson twice on Friday, he decides to sit him and Bradley all day Saturday. This decision, to put it very mildly, is going to have repercussions, and they're repercussions that last well beyond the end of the Ryder Cup. Mickelson is beside himself. He tells Watson he can get it done. He even texts, like Webb Simpson did, almost begging for a chance but Watson won't listen and Phil has an ego and the communication is bad and nobody really knows why Watson is making the decisions he's making. And so of course this sets Phil off. Of course it does. And by the way, it's not just the Americans who are surprised at this. The Europeans, Ian Poulter later wrote this in his book are just as stunned. They don't know what's going on in the other locker room. So instead of those guys, Watson puts Walker Fowler in the anchor spot those guys are dead tired. They've gone the distance in three straight matches, had their hearts broken not to get a win in two of them, and they've come away with three straight halves. And who are they up against? That's right, Graham McDowell and Victor de fresh as daisies. And you can guess how this one went, right? By the third hole, it is so abundantly clear to McDowell that Jimmy Walker is dead that he goes right over to de and tells them, let's show these guys how energetic we are. Let's show them how up for this we are. Well, whatever they did, it must have been convincing because after nine holes, they were five up. By the 14th hole, it was over. In the first match, Watson got led him to go with Zach Johnson and Matt Kuchar, a combined 0-3, and they hadn't played together either. I don't just mean in that Ryder Cup. They hadn't even practiced together. They had no indication they would ever partner up, and they're going up against McGinley's other, you know, big brother, little brother pair, Donaldson and Westwood. Of course, they lose too. Rory and Sergio finally get a win, 3-2 over Furick and Mayhen, And suddenly it's down to Jordan Spieth and Patrick Reed to try to salvage anything against Martin Keimer and Justin Rose. Now, parenthetically, by that point, McGinley had heard from people in Stenson's camp that he had a stiff back, which, you know, is another benefit you see of him having made connections with them before, with the caddies, with the agents, not just the players. And so he sat him. And in that last match on the course, for the first time, Patrick Reed blinks. Misses a few putts on the back nine, comes to 16 with a two-footer for par, and shockingly, he lipped that one out. I was there watching that match, and I can tell you I've seen some angry golfers, but I don't think I've seen anyone look the way Patrick Reed looked at that exact moment. But they win 17 to go one up, and this is a match the Americans need badly. So they go to 18, the par five. Spieth hits the second, and there's a groan. And suddenly you can see Andy North, one of the American vice captains, He's on the fairway with his hands on his head. He's in utter disbelief because he's heard the news. The ball is in the bunker on a down slope below the lip. Complete nightmare. Reed has to pitch out sideways. Keimer pitches to five feet. And when Rose takes his birdie putt, he doesn't even watch it fall before he turns to his team, gathered in the semi-darkness around 18, and puts both hands in the air. That's a half point. And at the end of the day, it's 10-6 to Europe, with only Sunday singles to go. Not insurmountable, even at home, as we found out two years earlier in Chicago, but pretty darn close. And what does Watson have to say after? Well, a lot, actually, but this quote sums it up pretty well. Quote, I made the best decisions I possibly could at the time I was making the decisions with the help of my vice captains and my guts. End quote. And he talked about his players not playing well, including Phil which is just him being honest, but again, can't have been appreciated at that moment. The most self-criticism he could muster was this quote when he said, and you know, if I had to second guess myself, I think it was based on just that, a couple of players getting tired. Might have done it differently if I knew they were going to be that way. I didn't know they were going to be that way. End quote. In other words, if I had known my players would let me down, I wouldn't have played them. Not exactly strong accountability or even, to be a little harsher, leadership and later it's even more pronounced. He says, quote, and that certainly is something that I thought they could handle, and maybe I regret not understanding that they couldn't handle it, End quote. As for McGinley, he was ecstatic on the inside, but he couldn't allow himself to show it. This job is far from finished, he said. Complacency had been a theme with him all week, and for good reason. On Friday and on Saturday, they knew the Americans would be coming, and they especially knew it on Sunday, because, dysfunction be damned, that is the single session. The Americans know they have the best golfers in the world. If you want an example of what they can do, look at the 2019 President's Cup in Australia. They were a disaster for the first three days, nearly got routed, had a huge deficit going into Sunday, and absolutely blew the internationals away because they were just better. And they're certainly not going to go away at a Ryder Cup. I remember that quote from the poster, we will be the rock when the storm arrives. They knew the storm was going to arrive on Sunday, and it did. The bit of good news for Europe early on was that Rory absolutely jumped all over. Ricky Fowler immediately kind of dominated him. But elsewhere, it was looking ugly. Graham McDowell gets three down against Jordan Spieth. Patrick Reed is Hanseling Henrik Stenson. Hunter Mahan is hanging with Justin Rose. Mickelson's all over. Poor Steven Gallagher. Coocher's up on Bjorn. And watching it that day, I'm kind of a mathematical person in those situations. I'm you know calculating. And at one point, I figured out that if every match ended the way it read on the scoreboard at that moment. The final score would be 14-14. to Still a European retention of the cup, but very close to tipping back over to the Americans. So the storm had very much arrived early on that Sunday, but The Rock wasn't going anywhere. McDowell fights back against Spieth, and by the back nine, he's leading. And Spieth is about as angry as you'll ever see him, yelling at himself. Seems like he might have been frustrated with his caddy, Michael Greller, just not in a good mood at all. Uh, And on 17, McDowell wins that match. And that match had to go to America, and it didn't. And whether there was a direct influence or not, you could see a ripple effect play out in the scoreboard. Reed won, and on the seventh hole, with the crowd screaming at him, he sank a birdie putt and actually lifted a finger and shushed them, which earned him the nickname the pantomime villain in the British press, and it started what would become sort of a trademark gesture. But elsewhere, the Europeans did enough. Rose halved Mahan, Kymer beat Bubba and soon it was clear that whatever brief moment of possibility the Americans had had, it was over. Jamie Donaldson, the rookie McGinley, had advised and encouraged as he hustled to make the team at the last moment, made the winning shot to beat Keegan Bradley, and the celebration was on. Final score, Europe 16.5, America 11.5. Another blowout. There's a quote I used in my book that I wrote, Slaying the Tiger, that came out in 2015, And at the risk of being repetitive, I want to use it again. It's from The Art of War by Sun Tzu, and the quote is, Thus it follows that the highest form of warfare is to outthink the enemy. The great warriors of old not only won victories, but won them with ease. Because their victories were achieved without apparent difficulty, they did not bring them great fame for their wisdom or respect for their courage. Being prepared for all circumstances is what ensures certain victory, for it means you are fighting an enemy who is already beaten. End quote. And doesn't that say it all? Now, we move to the postscript, and this is maybe the only Ryder Cup, or at least the only one I know of, where what happened afterward is more famous than what happened during the event. And the theater for the you know whole drama that's going to play out is the team press conferences, which is tradition for both sides. The losing team goes first, and that's the U.S. They file in. Everyone's very somber. And what we in the press maybe realized a little but didn't know the full extent yet was how furious everyone was at Tom Watson. He had the decisions he made, you know, leaving Spieth and Reed off on Friday afternoon, infuriating Mickelson, kind of making him beg for a spot on Saturday and then saying no. And then there's something else that happened on Saturday night before Sunday singles that comes out later. So that Saturday, they're down 10 to 6 and there was supposed to be this team bonding session. And by the way, a lot of the details I'm about to give come from Bob Herrig of ESPN. He's the first guy to break this. So everybody's at this nice ballroom at the Glen Eagles Hotel, you know, not incredibly happy in the first place. But they're there is a team you know, with a few hotel staffers and some PGA of America people. And the first thing out of Watson's mouth is, quote, you stink at foursomes. And you can see what he's trying to do there, maybe lighten the mood a little. But at this point, everyone's so mad that the timing just isn't right. Then he goes through the Sunday singles pairings and he starts taking shots at the European golfers. And again, you get the point, light the mood, get people laughing, show he's on their side, take some digs at the other guys, you know, get the confidence going. But nobody's on his side and it comes off a little crass to the people in the room. And it gets even worse when Jim Furyk, on behalf of the team, presents him with a replica Ryder Cup trophy signed by everybody and Watson basically scoffs at it, says it's not worth a thing if they don't win the real Ryder Cup. That makes everybody even madder. So then a few other people speak and the last one to go is Phil Mickelson. And the detail I can never get over, it's a small one, but he starts his speech by sitting in a chair in a way that he's got his back turned to Watson. And it's not clear if he sat between him and the team or what, but he's facing them and Watson's at his back. So by the physics of it, that would seem to be the case, right? And it's quite a move sitting right between them, right between Watson and the group, cutting off the captain from his team. And he addresses everyone one by one you know, tells a positive story about all the players. And according to Herrick's source, they loved it. One of Herrick's sources said, quote, it changed the tenor of the room from completely negative and heads down to, let's give this a go tomorrow. He gave almost 180 degrees difference than what Tom did, end quote. Then Sunday happens, they lose. Apparently, Watson tells a few of the players, including Keegan Bradley, that they should have played better. You know, he seems to have a knack at this point for doing everything completely wrong. So here we are at the team presser, and Watson starts by saying, the obvious answer is that our team has to play better. That's the obvious answer, and they do. You know, at this point, it doesn't sound like anything but throwing them under the bus and sort of abdicating all responsibility. He repeats that his mistake was playing guys who got tired, You know, which is still blaming them. And then the question comes, quote, anyone that was on the team at Valhalla, can you put your finger on what worked there and what hasn't worked since? End quote. Now, it's a funny question, and I honestly don't remember who asked it, but it's funny because the list of players on both teams is very small. It's Jim Furyk, who has answered a bunch of questions already. It's Hunter Mahan, who isn't really inclined to, and it's Phil Mickelson. Those are the only three repeat guys, and it's an opportunity Mickelson can't wait to seize. And his answer is sort of clever in that he goes into this long explanation of how good Paul Azinger was, how he got the whole team involved, made everyone feel invested, and how it worked in the President's Cups, too, and how it's failed in the last three Ryder Cups. This is a direct shot at Tom Watson, but it's indirect, too. You know, he's got some plausible deniability. And you have to give all kinds of credit to the next question. And again, I really wish I could remember who asked it, but it's perfect. Whoever it was says, that felt like a pretty brutal destruction of the leadership that's gone on this week. Bingo. Bingo. Rarely, rarely do you see that kind of put you on the spot, explain what you mean style of comment or question in golf media. There's no escape at this point. Phil starts by saying, oh, I'm sorry you're taking it that way, which is very funny. Let's admit that. He goes on to say, quote, I'm just talking about what Paul Eisinger did to help us play our best. He goes on for a few more sentences. And the next follow up from the from the questioner is that didn't happen this week. And here you have this long, dramatic pause. And you have to remember that in golf, no matter how bad things get, personally, you don't talk about a colleague to the media in a bad way, right? There's like a, the Omer Ta, the silence there. So the pause you have to think is sincere because what Phil's been asked is, you know, put this on Tom Watson. He's been given that opportunity. Put it on the captain. And his instinct as a golfer is not to, but his instinct as someone who is very upset and has just listened to Watson blame the team for the umpteenth time is, well, screw you. So he finally says, no, no, nobody here was in on any decision. So no. Next, Watson gets asked about this. Of course, he says that, no, he doesn't think Phil's being disloyal. And when he's asked about Azinger, who really was the best captain America had had to that point in the year, certainly the most innovative. He says, you know, it takes 12 players to win. It's not pods. It's 12 players. And he shows again that he doesn't really understand what Azinger did or why he did it. He doesn't understand, certainly, how thoroughly he's just been beaten by McGinley, and he doesn't really even understand the role of a modern captain. At that point, I got my turn to ask a question, and I decided to ask Jim Furick what he thought, and his response was funny. He said, gee, thanks, just sitting over here minding my own business. And then he said something that we used as a quote at the start of this podcast, uh, because I think it's very representative of what the Americans had to be feeling that day and what they've been feeling for years. And it's a simple statement. He just says, five of you have already asked me tonight, what's the winning formula? And what's the difference year in and year out? If I could put my finger on it, I would have changed this shit a long time ago. End quote. And in the intro, we end the quote there in that little montage. But he went on to say, but we haven't, and we are going to keep searching. And they did keep searching. A lot of people disagree on what Phil Mickelson did to Tom Watson in that press conference. To some, it is an act of... Just tremendous disrespect to a legend in what is almost certainly going to be, you know, his last act as a prominent figure in professional golf. It's unforgivable to others. And I lean this way. It's not only deserved, not just because of how Watson managed the team, but because of how he refused to accept any responsibility. But it's also necessary because, as I said at the start of this program, this is the Ryder Cup where even if you're the most dyed in the bull American and your philosophy is the players have to play better. You can no longer pretend that it's just bad luck. You can no longer pretend that everything's okay. To paraphrase Jim Furyk, you have to change this shit. You have to. And to their credit, they tried. Tom Watson fades away. Ted Bishop gets fired from the PGA of America just days before his term as president is over because he calls Ian Poulter, quote, a little schoolgirl on Facebook and Twitter. And that old guard that had made all these decisions basically all goes away. And the U.S. forms a Ryder Cup task force, which is the butt of a few jokes because of the name, but which is formed because they're finally starting to understand that in order to win these things, they need a comprehensive plan that goes deeper than just throwing together some good pairings. And the big lesson is that they need players to buy in. They need to get them involved. Davis Love III gets the captain nod for the next Ryder Cup 2016. The situation is flipped in the sense that he gets a pretty weak European team and they destroy them. So maybe there's something there. Then, of course, they get killed in Paris. So the jury's still out at that point. You wonder sometimes if the problems on the American side run too deep to fix. But in any case, they learned something. They were trying to fix it. Whistling Straits comes along. They absolutely dominate. They win by, you know, what is a modern historic margin in beating the Europeans. And now they get to go to Italy and try to prove that this task force is not only successful, but has made them once again the predominant team in the Ryder Cup. The story of the task force is not over yet. It's not fully told. We're going to learn a lot from Italy. But when you look at the legacy of Glen Eagles, here's what you see. You see an American team that is dysfunctional, led by a poor, unprepared captain, and they run into a buzzsaw with a captain at the top who has left absolutely nothing to chance. Again, remember Sun Tzu. They were beaten before they took the course. And if there's an irony there, the beatdown was so bad that maybe it wakes a sleeping giant. We'll see. But the lesson of Glenn Eagles is that no matter what conclusions you want to draw, or where you fall on all the various sides of the debate, there's one thing nobody can argue, and that's that something has got to change. Local Knowledge is produced by Greg Gottfried with editorial guidance from Sam Weinman. Today we want to thank Ivan Ross of Durham, North Carolina, for that montage intro with all the Ryder Cup clips that you heard at the start of the podcast. Thanks, Ivan. And if you liked what you heard, please subscribe to Local Knowledge wherever you get your podcasts. And check out Golf Digest's weekly podcast, The Loop. And guess what? We also have a new podcast on Golf Instruction hosted by Luke Cardin. It's really good, and it's called Golf IQ. Both of those are also available at all your favorite podcast hotspots. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.